Welcome to the Tournament of Everything, a bracket-style show where we randomly pick articles off Wikipedia and compare them like it's a basketball tournament. That's right, but more intense than that, for we take what looks like a basketball, but is in fact a pumpkin, and we sit that in front of a large, perfectly tuned harp. We then take each of our contestants and chuck them at the harp. Which one of those will play the chord that pleases the gourd? That will be the selection that moves on to the next round of the ultimate play the chord that pleases the gourd a lot of the time i think these ideas are too wacky to work but this one i gotta see where's this harp uh, it's on the way it's from amazon uh should be here in four to six weeks but i can't wait a moment longer rob so why don't you tell us what we're actually going to be doing and let's get right down to business we will actually be Sadly, picking two random articles off Wikipedia using a random Wikipedia link generator and then figuring out which one of those would move on to a round two of our tournament. No gourd pleasing involved. Good golly, that sounds like a good time. Let's not waste any more of that precious, precious time. And let's get in to round one. Round one. In round one, we have Kleiss Press against the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument. Ah, we have two things standing tall amongst their own fields. Uh, Let's see which one of these is going to be able to weather the storm that is round one. Kleiss Press is an American independent publisher of books in areas such as sexuality, erotica, feminism, gay and lesbian studies, gender studies, fiction, and human rights. It's a very eclectic group, and I don't think fiction really fits. I certainly could. Uh, You can imagine anything you like, but I'm guessing there's not a lot of picture books. Uh, This press was founded in 1980 uh, in Minneapolis, Minnesota, later moved to San Francisco, based out of Berkeley, until it was purchased by Start Media in 2014. It was founded by Frederique Delacoste, Felice Newman, and Mary Winfrey Trotman, who collectively financed, wrote, and published the press's first book titled Fight Back, Feminist Resistance to Male Violence. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's you know very much about uh, all things sex and gender related. And it's developed uh, over the years. Kleist Press has, public non- has published nonfiction books. Um, they've also done fiction, uh, including works by Aki Obahas, uh, Stephen Elliott, and others. Um, they've got multi-language. Uh, let's see here. They're also into erotica collections and self-help sex guides. Its competitor, the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument, is a national monument in the western United States protecting the Missouri Breaks of north-central Montana. Okay, so the Missouri Breaks are in Montana. That's good to know. It's managed by the Bureau of Land Management. That's the BLM that people forget about. And it's a series of badland areas characterized by rock outcroppings, steep bluffs, and grassy plains. Yeah, it's a topography known as the breaks to the locals um, as the land appears to break away to the river. 
uh, created by proclamation in 2001 by Bill Clinton. Uh, it encompasses 377,000 acres of public land, most of which were already managed by the federal government. Now, the adjacent Missouri River was designated as a wild and scenic river in 1976 and forms a western boundary with the Charles M. Russell National Wildlife Refuge to the east. The Brakes country was a model for many of the paintings done by painter Charles M. Russell. Yeah, certainly gorgeous, tall, standing, sheer cliffs of stone um, naturally formed over the eons and the ages. Uh, in history, French trappers found this area uh, French trappers found it late in the 18th century, but it was already peopled by Native American tribes, such as the Blackfoot, the Northern Cheyenne, Sioux, uh, and several others. Uh, the Crow name for this place translates to where the Crow warrior skunk was killed. That's kind of an interesting name. Look at that. Now, as with most things, close reading is required because no, Europeans didn't find it. It was already there. <laughs> Hey, guys, look at this ocean I found that everyone already knew about. Let's name it after something. Sure, buddy. Mm-hmm. Yep, it's a tale as old as time, but this this land is almost older than time. In fact, comprised of elements of the universe that existed before the Big Bang and before the beginning of time, as do we all, um, including our other competitor, Kleiss Press. Now, in 2014, Kleist Press, along with Imprints, Viva Editions, and Tempted Romance, was purchased by Start Publishing and is now a division of Start Media. So look at that. They had their little company, and they've been bought up into a bigger company. That's right. Uh, they've been very successful. They've been the recipient of many awards, including several Lambda Literary Awards, but... Um... You know, I just don't know if it can quite stand up to these towering cliffs um, created by the deep seas of time. Yeah, it's, there's a lot of really pretty pictures in the article for the Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument. There's one in particular that's the top one of the article. You see the breaks overlooking some water, very purple and reddish sky, very, very beautiful. If I had to pick one of these, whether one of those books to read or this place to visit, I think I'm going to go with the place to visit. Sorry, Kleist Press. Them's the breaks. Upper Missouri River Breaks National Monument. You are our unanimous selection and move on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Pretty place, nowhere near Missouri. So, it's got that going for but it. If you need some light reading, um, it sounds like they have some instructional, informational, and, um, you know, just enjoyable uh, books that you could take along your way. Speaking of on our way, let's proceed to round two. It's time for round two. In round two, we have St. Michael Catholic Secondary School against Justin Smith Moral Homestead. Okay. Uh, the Justin Smith Moral Homestead Historic Carpenter Gothic Home of United States Senator Justin Smith Moral. But this beautiful St. Michael Catholic Secondary School, uh, simply known as St. Mike's, it's cheeky. It's one of three high schools in the Stratford area. Let's see which one of these is going to graduate. 
to the next round. Now, St. Mike's is not named after this Mike. It's a different Mike. They have approximately 900 students that attend on an annual basis. It's well known for its athletic program, and the school continually sends teams to OFSAA, many of which have been very successful. As a matter of fact, in the 2007 school year, the senior girls' volleyball team captured gold for the second year in a row, while the boys' team won the bronze. Not to be outdone, the senior boys' Nordic ski team, consisting of Scott Weersink, Brent Weersink, Ian Hartman, and Ian Weir, a whole bunch of names that lined up for success, won the OSFAA gold as a team in the 10-kilometer ski race. Every year, the students who attend St. Mike's participate in an event called March for Mike's, where each student is asked to raise $35. The money is distributed among all the sports teams and clubs at St. Mike's to decrease the cost for each individual student to join a club, which is great, because I'm sure Nordic Ski Team has a lot of equipment. Yeah, uh, that is a wonderful program helping out everybody. You know, everybody is like a family in that case. Speaking of families, let's talk about one particular family and one particular homestead, the Justin Smith Morrill Homestead. Again, as we stated, the gothic home of United States Senator Justin Smith Morrill. This was first declared a National Historic Landmark in 1960, and it's located at 214 Justin Morrill Highway, south of the village green of Stratford. The homestead is a Vermont historic the Vermont State Historic Site, owned by the Vermont Division for Historic Preservation, and it's open for tours from May through October. That's right. So I'd like to set you a mental scene here. Go ahead, Rob. Close your eyes. The Morrill Homestead, set on three acres of land on the east side of Justin Memorial, Justin Morrill Memorial Highway. Uh, the main house it's a rambling one and a half story wood frame structure set on a brick foundation and rub. The walls are finished in flush boarding. Well, don't forget it's steeply pitched slate roof and portions of that roof are decorated with verge board, finials and crenellated parapets, which I think is a fancy castle thing for those toothy things. I think that I just want to hear you say that word again. Crenellated parapets. Crushed it, Rob. As did the uh, designers of this town, uh, or of this uh, homestead, uh, both internally and externally. Uh, the furnishings and the moral family possessions still remain in the house. From the furniture to the linens, the kitchen implements, you can go see it to this day. Uh, the interior walls have only seen minimal alterations, uh, which have generally been limited to maintenance, such as new coats of paint. Now, Morrill's primary legacy to the nation and the reason we pay attention to where his house currently is, even though he hasn't been alive to live in it for a while, are the Morrill Land Grants Act of 1862 and 1890 that established and expanded on the concept of the Land Grant University, by which the federal government gave land to the states for the establishment of universities. And among another significant accomplishment for him during his long tenure in Congress he saw through the completion of the Washington Monument, the Library of Congress, and the landscaping of the Capitol. Wow. So he was definitely involved, oversaw a lot of things, um, as does a school. 
including our good uh, other competitor here, the St. Michael Catholic Secondary School, in addition to the pre-athletics you know, the, the athletics that we've already mentioned, there are a large number of other clubs and extracurriculars. They have a vibrant and diverse variety of activities that contribute greatly to the school's overall atmosphere with clubs ranging from arts to social justice. There's, there's an activity for every student, Rob. As a matter of fact, in recent years, thanks to increased funding, the school's been able to grow and support a band program that currently consists of three different bands, and it's a good thing they did because notable alumni include none other than the Biebs. Justin Bieber Ooh. graduated in 2012. Baby, 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 oh baby. Uh, if it wasn't for this school, we might not have that classic line of American poetry. Um, Justin Bieber and his alma mater versus Justin Smith and his homestead. Uh, boy, this is a fantastic competition. Rob, where are you leaning here? I really think I will have to go to a tiebreaker. I don't think I can separate the two in my brain. Yeah, um, you know, what uh, Justin Smith, Moral Homestead, has going for it is, you know, everything, the history around what that you know person was involved in, as well as the historical preservation of the house, uh, what it has going against it. You know, it's it's just a house and the guy oversaw things. Uh, St. Michael's Secondary Catholic, Catholic Secondary School. It gave us Justin Bieber, but it also gave us Justin Bieber. So we have to decide how we feel about all of these things and come to an answer. So let's take our hands off of it and let's put it up to chance. We will let the universe decide. So I got a box in the mail that was ticking. And I yes. think I'm going to shake that box. And we're just going to count one shake, two shakes, three shakes. And whenever it either explodes or I get tired, whatever number that is closest to is the winner. So what number do you want? So I'm going to guess that because uh, I sent you that box and I'm not going to think that you're going to get past two. So I'm going to go with two. Okay. I'm going to go with 1855. I'll represent the homestead. You represent the Beebs school. Okay. Here comes a bunch of shaking. Five thousand six hundred and fifty-three. Wow, you shook that very quickly. Yeah, yeah, I know. Couldn't you hear it? Here, one more time. Can you just hear the shaking? Yeah, yeah. I think it. I think it. It might be busted though. But what's <laughs> not busted is your selection and guess of number, meaning that Justin Smith Morial Homestead, you're moving on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Gotta love a homestead. That's what we decided, right? Yeah. Right. Yeah. You had, you had the beebs. I had the place. Yeah. You picked uh, two. I picked a number bigger than two. Yeah, we'll have to go back and see. But I think at least now we're agreed. Justin Smith, Moral Homestead, <laughs> you're our champion. Moving on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Any of our eagle-eared listeners will have noticed that there have been several times when we've said something and then picked the other one because we've forgotten in the moment between selection and victory. So if this is one of those times, congratulations, you're the winner. 
It's never over till it's over. And this is certainly not over, for it is only time for round three. Three. It's time for round three. In round three, we have the Blue Jinn of Babylon against Malekda. 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 Fantastic. Another small province in Iran versus another piece of, uh, you know, story of uh, art of fiction that we have never heard of before. So let's see which one of these is going to prevail today. The Blue Jinn, which is spelled D-J-I-N-N of Babylon, is a novel by P.B. Kerr, which tells the second chapter of John and Philippa Gaunt and their adventures as Jinn, which I think is like a genie. It's the second book of the Children of the Lamp series, and the book earned a place on the New York Times bestseller list for children's books and received generally favorable reviews. Indeed. Yeah, it seems like this is a, a, a genie story. Uh, let me try and hit you with a quick summary. I'm going to skip a lot, so hold on to your hats. In the year 2005, at the end of October, at Halloween, Philippa wanted to be a witch, and John wanted to be a Dracula with real blood. They lived in New York. They had been pr- uh, they promised their mother not to use their gin powers uh, without consulting her first. Uh, they lead pretty normal lives. It seems that they go missing, uh, and then a grimoire is uh, not missing. Uh, there's a whole lot here. I'm reading it pretty quickly, but it seems like they got into some magical, mystical trouble. It's always interesting when you paraphrase a children's book, it's longer than reading the whole book. There are more words probably in this summary of the children's book than there are probably in the entire children's book. Well, I could tell you, uh, coincidentally, uh, the twins later in the story join Nimrod and Gronin in a restaurant called Kebabilan in Iraq. Uh, And uh, they're introduced to other people so all i'm saying is that our two competitors while not in the same country are geographically you know pretty close as far as the the world goes i retract my previous statement the book is 371 pages that's many pages but you know what is not 371 pages this town in iran which has no pages because it's just a place it has no pages but it does have 59 families, and we love that stat here. Um, interesting thing here, Malkade is the, uh, it appears, Romanized version. Um, it can also be split into two words as Malekde, but it's also known as Balekde, uh, a village in Aliabad-e-Ziba-Kinar rural district. Have you been practicing your Iranian pronunciations? I certainly have. Uh, checking it out, though, it seems to be one of the more favorably located uh, tiny Iranian places that we've looked at. This looks to be towards the north, right on the coast. Got some water, beachside property. Um, and, I mean, I, I again, don't know much about Iran, but I would think if you're going to be there, hey, let's hit the beach. Now the question is, would you rather hit the beach or read all 371 pages of the Blue Jinn of Babylon? Well, I do love a good story. Genies are capable of 
all but three things. And um, I can't imagine what could possibly can be contained within the pages of this book. Um, I think I could imagine what be, could be contained within the confines of Malik Hadeh. Malik Deh. Malik Deh. <laughs> could be either one, depending on your regional pronunciation. But how regional could that pronunciation be when there are 59 families? Do you think half of them pronounce it one way and half of them pronounce it the other way and they live all within a mile of each other? I hope so, because that would make for a really interesting 371-page book. I agree with you there. So this book, reading more of this summary, it gets kind of weird. They take over bodies of people and dogs and there's a human named Alan and another human named Neil that's left alive. So that's probably good. Uh, okay. Crossover here. They are in Iraq for some of this book. Right. Right next door to Iran. Yeah. I, I've right already mentioned what you've already mentioned this. Yeah. What we've talked about it already at length. Oh, I feel like I'm in a time <laughs> loop. Is there a time loop in this novel? Uh, there very well could be 371 pages of geniistic magic could contain anything that you could possibly contain and more. But let's skip to the ending for the novel ends with the children still not knowing. But as Layla knows, Ayesha's life is rapidly ending. Must tell her children the reason Ayesha did not pursue them after escaping and leave forever to assume her post at the cold hearted Bujin of Babylon. Does that clear things up for you? I'm more confused now than when we started. And I think for that reason, I need to go with the one that's simple. Oh, I completely disagree. Are we having two tiebreakers in a row? Because I'm pretty psyched on this blue gin of Babylon. I can be convinced. Blue gin of Babylon. We'd like to make a whole martini of these 371 pages, but we can't because that's paper and it would soak up the vermouth. So we're just going to move you on to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. Small towns in Iran usually do so well. Yeah, but uh, this was actually a, uh, a province or a, a district. Is this a town? It's a village. I don't know. This wasn't up to snuff. 371 pages of magic. Come on now. Not good enough. You know, it is good enough. Round four. Ah, my round four is ready. In round four, we have religion in Brunei against Demeldang Castle. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Uh, this is very exciting. Uh, we've got, you know, statistics about uh, beliefs in a location. We've also got a place that uh, seems unbelievable, uh, a location that does seem indeed unbelievable. So let's check them out and see which one is going to reside in the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Among religions in Brunei, Sunni Islam is the predominant religion, and in 2016, it was estimated that 80.9% of Brunei's population is Muslim. However, other religions also have a considerable foothold in Brunei. 7% of the population is Christian, and another 7% is Buddhist, and the remaining 5% subscribe to various religions, including indigenous religions. Now, uh, Islam is the state religion of Brunei, but 
freedom of religion is guaranteed. The freedom, however, is limited for several cases. Uh, the right to practice privately is given to a plethora of religions. Uh, furthermore, some non-Islamic holidays, such as Lunar New Year, Christmas, things like that are recognized. Uh, these rights, however, are limited. Um, religious education is controlled, even in the Chinese, Christian, and private schools. And any non-Islamic religious materials being distributed are gazetted as illegal and uh, tightly forbidden. Where if caught, it will result in an immediate punishment by death without judgment. So that's not great. I wouldn't really call that freedom. <laughs> yeah, that's that's a twist at the end there. Um, boy, howdy. <laughs> Um, you know, uh, there's there's other things here. At least we know, you know, they there is religion in Brunei. We know that for sure. They take it real seriously, and um, uh, you know, they still celebrate Christmas, even though apparently you cannot hand out a pamphlet about it. That being said, let's jump over to our other competitor, the Donald Dang Castle. Uh, located in Dang, uh, in the most northerly quarter of Luxembourg City. Now, it is French, so Chateau de... I don't know how Dang is pronounced in French. One of the Some of those letters are silent. I just don't know which ones. Damaldage? I don't know. I don't know. Something like that. It was initially a private residence built for the owner of the local ironworks, and it is now currently the embassy of the People's Republic of of China. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as you can imagine, a really beautiful looking building here. Um, sweet residence. It's got spires. It's very pokey top uh, with all sorts of ornamentation and uh, looks like vertical rods. Um, this castle appears to have been built in the 17th century by Thomas Marchant, a forge operator. Um, in 1870, Charles Collart, also a forge operator, lived there. And uh, in 1973, it was bought by the state. That's so interesting. It went from housing people who forge materials to housing people who forge relationships. That's nice. <laughs> uh, speaking of forging relationships, let's jump back over to Brunei to discuss the religions contained therein. Now in Brunei, non-Muslims must be at least 14 years and 7 months old if they want to convert to another religion. I'm wondering why the specific month cut off, but that's fine. A minor will automatically become a Muslim if his parents convert to Islam. Can you imagine if you could drive at 16 months or 16 years and 7 months you had to wait those extra 7 months? Yeah, I mean, I can imagine. Don't if you if you fail your test, don't you have to wait a certain period of time to go and try again? Yeah, a week, I think, week or two. Oh, okay. Well, if you fail it enough times, you'll get to seven months. Um, yeah, you know, a bunch of statistics here. When you look at this beautiful pie chart, uh, you would definitely want to be given the portion that is represented by uh, the. You know, the Islamic individuals in this town, that would be the largest amount of pie um, and perhaps enough pie to uh, satiate someone working all day at an iron forge and coming home for a delicious pie dinner at the Dang Castle. 
I really think I have to go with the castle. One, because I don't know how it's pronounced, and that's intriguing to me. Two, it housed people who worked the earth in the fact that they took metal out of it to make more metal with it. And three, because you won't get murdered for bringing a pamphlet about Christmas. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, if you're going to talk about freedom of religion and, and guarantee it and things like that, like, you kind of want to back that up a little bit. Doesn't necessarily seem like they are. Uh, immediate death punishment without judgment is a pretty steep uh, punishment for just about anything. Um, so until they revisit their policies, I too think I'm going to go with this delightful residence in Luxembourg called the Dommeldang Castle. Uh, Dommeldang it, it's moving on to the next round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. Bernai, if you revise your policy, we might give you another chance, but as long as you're going to murder people on site for possessing materials that you don't like, I don't think I'm going to visit. By the way, my name is Rob, and we're moving on to the next round of... Wait, wait, that'd be round five. Five! Round five. And your mic. We talked about this. Your mic. I'm, talk I'm talking into a mic. We're both Rob. Oh. Uh, and here we are in round five. In round five, we have Gaston de Trenoy against... Nova Slobodskaya. It's in Russian. Mm -hmm. It's not only in Russian, it's in Russia. It's a Moscow metro station in the Dverskoy district of the Central Administration Administrative Orkrug, Moscow. Well, there we go. That's kind of interesting. The picture looks kind of fun. The building, it looks like a, one of those melting paintings. Like they put the yeah. hallway out in the sun for too long and all the doors are warped now. Truly, folks, this is pretty trippy. It's like a hallway of uh, cathedral hallways intersecting into one trippy hallway. Alexei Dushkin was the station's architect, and he has long wished to utilize stained glass and decoration of a metro station in the first drawings day two pre-World War II times. Certainly did a good job, um, not only with the architecture, but with things to decorate it. Um, you know, the platforms are well-designed. Uh, even the trains look to be paired uh, stylistically. The lighting hanging above is also uh, beautifully ornate and stylistically, uh, you know, linked. There's artwork on the platforms themselves. But really, nothing's comparing to that uh, that hallway that you that they're showing here. Lots of decorative uh, stained glass, though, throughout. Dushkin actually took the standard pylon layout designed for subways and made that into the overall impression to resemble that of an underground crypt, which is not necessarily what I want to be thinking about when I'm going down underground to take the train. No, yeah, you want to... You want to kind of feel not necessarily like you're going into a grave, uh, into a small hole, a small tunnel contained deep within the, you know, the the silent confines of the static earth. Now, someone that who wasn't in the earth, but on top of the earth, the static earth, was Gaston de Trenoy. He was a Belgian equestrian 
He competed at the 1912 Summer Olympics and the 1920 Summer Olympics, and because it doesn't list a medal, I bet he didn't get one. That's right, but uh, don't doubt this uh, equestrian's medal. Now, my question is, uh, at, at what point, like, so at what point do you have to be fancy enough as a horse to stop being referred to as a horse and start being referred to as an equestrian? Well, I don't think they're talking about the horse, Mike. I think they're talking about the man riding the horse. I think the horse is just called a horse. Of course. Oh, I thought we were talking about the horse. No, it's a horse, of course, but this man is a horse rider. Oh, uh, yes. Well, then, uh, yes, this individual was certainly, on top of things, more specifically, a horse. Now, I do, though, wonder why we don't call it just horseback riding, why we do call it a quest. Equestrian, equest, equest. What is equestrix? What? How? What is the the correct noun? I guess it says equestrianism. But wouldn't you think then that the rider would be an equestrian? Yeah, I'm not exactly sure. the The baffling nature of the Olympic naming conventions doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, uh, the Olympics are by and large an absurd event. Uh, again, you said he's. Competed in two, the 1912 Summer Olympics, officially known as the Games of the Olympiad, um, took place in Stockholm, whereas the 1920 Summer Olympics, uh, known as the VII Olympiad, and of course these are Roman numerals that we're referring to, took place in Antwerp. I think VII is seven. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, but uh, when it was just a V, it could have been anything. Uh, speaking of could have been anything, let's talk about the potential that takes place when you're standing there. You got a ticket in your hand. There's a train pulling up, and it could take you to anywhere, definitely from somewhere. That somewhere being Novoslobodskaya in Moscow. It is best known for its 32 stained glass panels, which were the work of Latvian artists E. Vainlanden, E. Crests, M. Riskin, and those just those three, and M. Riskin. Each panel has an elaborate glass border, and at the end of the platform, there's a mosaic by Pavel Korn entitled Peace Throughout the World with more stained glass panels. This is the fanciest subway station I think I've ever been to. Well, heard of. It's really pretty fancy. Um, now, I... There is included here, it looks like a, a map of their whole metro, uh, you know, train system. Uh, and this particular uh, station is located on, there's a, a loop that seems to go around central Moscow. And there are other lines that intersect it at varying angles. Uh, this appears to be toward the northern extreme of the loop, connecting to what appears to be the gray line. Um, so if you're ever in Moscow, you know, take a nice trip around and uh, get off somewhere at the top and you might find yourself in this beautiful train station. And it's because of that beauty that I think it beats its competitor, our horseback rider in the Olympics. I'm sure he was great. I'm sure he looked very spiffy riding oars, but he does not have the staying power that this train station, I believe, does. 
Yeah, I completely agree. Um, if he had taken gold in the Olympics, either of them, we probably would know. Uh, and I'm just seeing a whole bunch of just gold star quality stuff here in this uh, train station. Here's here. Let me tell you one more thing. It is possible from this station to transfer to Mendeley Sokovavka on the Serpo Kovshko. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> and that's why. Novo Slobo Dovo Skyaya. You are moving on to the next round of the ultimate, ultimate tournament of everything. Well, before we have to pronounce any other Russian, let's just get into round six. <laughs> Make the turn around, Jurassic Curve. He comes, he comes around the last second. There you have it. There is your winner. Round six. In round six, we have Khadija against Club Deportivo Universidad Tecnica del Estado. We've got a club, a football club, I believe, versus a name um, to the first wife of the Islamic prophet Muhammad. Um, it's one of the three most popular Arabic names. Let's see if it's popular enough to defeat its opponent in this round of the Ultimate Tournament of Everything. In 1995, it was one of the three most popular Arabic feminine names in the Muslim world, along with Fatima and Aisha. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it looks like Hatis is the Turkish equivalent. Um there are several people with the name Khadija uh, that are, are historical figures, uh, both of living and non-living fame. Uh, I'll read off a few here. We've got Khadija Sultana, um, Khadija Gaibova, uh, Khadija of the Maldives. Uh, those are all past, but present people. We've got Khadija Willington, just simply Khadija, who apparently actually has, has passed as well. Um, Khadija Laya, a whole bunch. It's a beautiful name, including even used for fictional people. Yeah, I think when you're the third most popular name in a certain language, there's going to be a lot of people who have that name. And that's what we have right here. We have a list of people with this name. Lovely name. Uh, and the meaning of which is premature. Oh, it's kind of an interesting meaning. I, I don't know how I feel about that. Well, uh, I think for us to make a judgment on that would be premature. So let's let it digest and jump over to our other contestant, the Club Deportivo Universidad Tecnica del Estado. Now this was the Chilean Association Football Club linked to the Technical University of the State of Chile, currently the University of Santiago. It was founded in 1948 and disappeared <laughs> the same year we landed a man on the moon, I wonder if they're connected, 1969. It's rare that an entire universidad will just up and disappear like that. Um, but you know what? In 1969, hey, a lot of things were going on, man. People were, were free swigging and, uh, you know, you had to, you never knew what was going to come across your plate. So 
apparently this school just up and disappeared. Um, but it left behind some facts, including um, there was a record Segunda Division victory, uh, six to nothing for Santiago National. Uh, they also had a record Segunda Division defeat, zero to seven for San Luis de Quillota. Now, they never won anything. The best they ever made it was fourth place. The worst they ever made it was 12th. It doesn't tell me out of how many, but those aren't great numbers. This isn't looking like a winner, and I don't think it could beat anybody named Kadija. No, and there are so many people named Kadija. I just got to think that, uh, you know, every single one of them must be a winner, which means that Kadija, its name itself, must be a winner. What is in a name, Rob? I ask you and I answer you, victory. Kadija, you are moving on to the next round of... The Ultimate Tournament of Everything. That poor university. Just gone. Just gone. Yeah. Just, just, you know, I hope they get one of those uh, cold case, uh, you know, there's a bunch of cold case podcasts and other things like that out there. I hope somebody looks into where that school went. Um, you know, you might dig up something special. Speaking of digging up something special, Rob, let's move on to round seven. Round seven. In round seven, we have McTyrus Longacarpus against Julian Barajas. McTyrus Longacarpus. McTyrus Longacarpus. I'm not even going to waste time. McTyrus Longacarpus. I clicked into it, and I'm seeing it. Look, this is a light blue soldier crab, a species of crab that lives on sandy beaches from the base of Bengal to Australia. With other names or with other members of the genus of that it's in, it is one of the most loved crabs in Australia, and I can see why at a glance. It's funky looking. It's blue, and it's got these weird kind of, you know, oddly shaped pincers in the front this is a funky crab i'm already smitten julian barajas don't know anything about you yet but uh i'm already kind of leaning towards your competitor does this crab look like andy reed football coach for the kansas city chiefs <laughs> oh my goodness it looks exactly like andy reed i i, I he, all he needs is a little hat and a clipboard and they're the same person but who's the other andy andy uh he's an actor he also kind of looks like him but or Wilford, Wilford, there's a little bit of Wilford Brimley in there as well. Uh, anyways, this crab is is beloved. Uh, adults are about one inch across, white, with blue on their backs, and hold their claws vertically. They feed on detritus in the sand, leaving rounded pellets of discarded sand behind them, and the males may form into large armies, which traverse the beach at low tide before the crabs dig into the sand to wait for the next low tide. Well, that's terrifying. I think I saw this in Bluey, actually. There's a Bluey episode, Australian kid show, bunch of blue crabs. It all makes sense now. Let's jump over to our other competitor, Julian Barajas, um, and a Mexican football player who plays midfielder for the uh, Cafetaleros de Chiapas. He made his professional debut with Tijuana, on the 20th of July, 2016, playing the full 90 minutes of a Copa MX victory against Toluca. He's made lots wow. of appearances and actually has scored several goals. 
Yeah, uh, this is hey, this guy's a baller. You know, he's a, a midfielder, number 10. Um, he's only 25 years old as well, so he's got a lot in front of him. Um, you know, he's doing things on his legs. Do you think he can run sideways as quickly as he can run forward? I think we got to go with the crab because the crab has four more legs. That's a good point. And uh, it's hold, it holds its hands vertically. So it would be difficult for it to have a handball either. And with four legs, you got to think that his kicking skills would be just divine. Uh, and you'd never, you know, if you had a free kick, you'd never know where it was going to come from. Uh, man, what an effect. Although he's only an inch large. That's going to count against him. Whoa, 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 that's only a couple inches shorter than this guy. He's only 5'8". <laughs> okay, okay. Yeah, I'll go with that. Look, this crab, look it up, people. Uh, Mictiris longicarpus. Uh, it is a sweet-looking crab as far as crabs go. Um, let's see if we can learn anything else before we, we head off. Uh it spends much of the time buried in the sand, uh, and they emerge a few hours before a low tide because they get a notification on their, uh, on their, I don't know, crab phones. How do, how do crabs communicate? How do they know, Rob? Probably telepathy. Now, one interesting thing about this species is it is one of the few crab species that walks forward. So its crab walk is just called a walk. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Um that's even more special and would make it an even better soccer player. Yeah. I, I don't know why we're even leaving Julian in here. He's he's gone. He's lost. Look, I'm just going to throw one more thing at you. Um, they, this has been commented how you know different types of crabs uh, distribute, you know, they display behaviors also seen in human society. And while some crabs are caricatures of uh, this one individual, uh, Michael Tweedy, uh, a naturalist and archaeologist from Southeast Asia, uh, says that uh, you know most crabs represent the middle class. These crabs were cheerful bohemians living crowded together and uh, outdoing in unrepressed and irresponsible behavior. Even those human communities who aspire, or which aspire most strenuously towards this ideal. This is a crab from my very heart, and I think that uh, I'm going to move it on. Rob, do I have your concurrence to the next round of the ultimate tournament? Brings up that age-old question: Do people imitate crabs, or do crabs imitate people? Hmm. <sighs> yes, indeed. Hmm. The, the world may never know. Yeah, but we'll keep asking questions, not only now and here, but also there. In the next round, round eight. I say, would you by chance have any round eight? Round eight. In round eight, we have Strips Chaprich against, oh, this is a word I've never seen before. There's a lot of vowels in there. Give me a second. Vidan Irakchigoda. Hey, good job. Yeah. Um, Of course, the aforementioned name is uh, that of the small town in Sri Lanka located within the southern province facing off against his competitor, also aforenamed, aforenamed, 
mentioned the Dutch prize awarded to comic creators for their entire body of work. That is awarded annually by Strips Chap, the Dutch Society of Comic Fans, since 1974. The prize is non-pecuniary, but is considered the most important award for comics in the country. And I'm assuming non-pecuniary means there's no money involved? I'm going to have to take that out to the Google machine. I think that's Latin for bragging rights. Uh, Looking through the list here, uh, a a number of individuals uh, who've done great work. Um, None of them are particularly familiar to myself at a glance, however. Yeah, so non-pecuniary means no money. So it's so great that they haven't put a dime into it, but a lot of people have won one person a year and a lot of these names, maybe someone knows who Typex is, maybe somebody who knows who Peter Van Dongen is, maybe somebody recognizes Barbara Stock. I don't, but somebody might. But you know what I don't recognize? Anything about this town in Sri Lanka. And we also don't have any other information. What Mike read earlier is the entirety of the Wikipedia entry. So we've got this place that we know nothing about other than that it has an awesome and nearly impronounceable name versus um an award given and i've been scrolling over the names of these uh the winners you know from this award uh handed out annually and almost every single one of them is a slightly old white guy with a pencil in his hand this list now they're already winners do they need more accolades do they need more non-pecuniary awards i don't think so I don't think any of these people deserve another award that doesn't come with any winnings. I think we have to go with the town. I'm going to give it one more shot here. Vedan Irak Chigoda. There's no way that's correct, but there's no way that it would be correct to not move this competitor on to the next round. I love the name. I want to learn more about it. And gosh darn it, I want to go there, even though I don't know where it is. So please guide me forward. And guide this contestant forward to the next round of the ultimate tournament of everything. What a place, probably. Probably. We'll more than likely never get around to learning and finding out uh, because infinity is a lot. So that's why here on these full length episodes of the ultimate tournament of everything, we strive to bring you excellence round after round. Uh, And so if you have appreciated hearing such, please like, please subscribe, please comment, tell your friends. You can reach out to us as well via anchor FM. Uh, You can send us sound things. You can comment uh, anywhere that you can find to get a hold of us we would love to hear from you and uh, let us know what's working what's not speaking of working let's get to work rob and get in to round nine it's about time for round nine it's about time for round nine in round nine we have bill glenn entrepreneur against sir cog Most definitely, this is the case. We have these two competitors facing off. In this, the last round, fireworks are flying already. Uh, I can tell that we're going to have to call in the medics. So let's jump right in here to round nine. Bill Glenn is an American entrepreneur. And in 2001, 
Information Week named him as one of the 15 thought leaders who intend to influence and inspire the IT industry. And apparently he did such a great job that no one today knows who he is. Well, uh, we know that he's the founder of Collective IQ, a venture capital platform. He has a successful investment track record and helped close over $1 billion for the funds and businesses he has founded, uh, helped build and add and advised. Uh, he advises leaders of London's Royal Institution, World Science Assembly, and the East-West Institute. He's focused on the harmonizing of humanity and the weaponization of science, and I don't know if that means we shouldn't or if that means we're trying to do it more. Yeah, those are definitely uh, ambiguous titles. It sounds like this is the guy who's going to make the Terminator, and he's been set back in time as a plant just so we wouldn't think about him <laughs> when he arrives. Well, uh, yeah, I, I, I concur there, Robert. Uh, he, he wrote a book called Left on Red, How to Ignite, Leverage, and Build Visionary Organizations. Uh, you know, that could just, again, very vague. Uh, the guy, he's, you know, a venture capitalist. I'm not exactly sure what he's talking about. But I'm not exactly sure what we're talking about in regards to our other contestant, Serkog. It's a town in the Garzi Tibetan Autonomous Prefecture of Sichuan, China, which is an autonomous prefecture in the western arm of the Sichuan province, China, bordering Yunnan to the south and the Tibet Autonomous Region to the west and Gansu to the north and northwest. That's right. And uh, China is a country in East Asia. For all of our friends that didn't know where China was. Yeah. There's somebody. Nobody knows everything, Rob. Um, and we know almost nothing about this town, but perhaps its mystery is its allure. Yeah, we've read the entire article. We've actually read both of these articles. We have two very short articles here for two, I would say, vast competitors. I think if you've raised over a billion dollars, and I think if you're a vast mountainous landscape, there should be more about each of you. Yeah, it's a little suspicious that... Uh, so many successful people keep themselves under wraps. You know, they don't they don't want us to know. What are they doing? So many successful locations want to keep themselves under wraps. What do you have there? And why am I not enjoying it? And for people, usually that answer will, uh, if you dig into it long enough, be something shady. However, for a location, it's probably something absolutely delightful that they simply don't want to share with us Westerners. So... I'm going to agree with their approach and choose them as my selection, Sercog, to move on to the next round of The Ultimate Terminator. Now he's thinking about moving Bill Glenn on only because I think when he invents the T-1000, I want to be remembered as someone who gave him an award and liked him favorably. But in the event that it doesn't happen and China actually takes over the world, I should probably be a friend of Sercog. Such a pickle. It is. Uh, we could leave it up to fate if you choose. Oh, well, I I think I'm going to stake my claim, and the only place to stake a claim is not in a person, because that's called murder, but in a place. And so I think I'm going to agree with you and go with Sircog. Okay, excellent. Uh, yeah, Sircog, uh, you are moving on to the next round, inevitably. Uh, whenever we get around to it, 
of the ultimate tournament of everything.